0: This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the fight for Medicare for all through the lens of the Democratic primary elections. Now, before we get started, there's just a few thoughts to take with you. I just want to point out that today's episode is focused on politics. We're not really making the case for Medicare for all. Like some of that slips in there naturally, but we're focusing on politics because that is the process, God help us, for how things actually get done. And with money and politics, there is almost no such thing as people changing their minds. So trying to convince them using argumentation and reason and facts and statistics and morality and anything else. Uh, will have almost no effect. Uh, people pretty much vote the way they are paid to vote unless they are sufficiently scared by the voting public. Literally people threatening to vote them out of office, regardless of how much money they have to spend on campaign ads, is the one thing that can turn a politician 's vote away from the moneyed interests so we 're focusing on politics today, and I just want to tell this one story. That's not in the show. It's, it, but it's the thing that stuck out to me the most when when doing my listening and my research. It, it's the story from Wendell Potter. He's famous in you know healthcare reform circles. He's been around for about ten years, advocating for uh, for this very serious healthcare reform, and and you'll hear from him in the show today. But his history is that he used to work inside. A big health insurance company, and his job was literally the spin doctor. He was the one who would speak with the media and try to convince everyone that private health insurance companies were great, and that all of the horrible things that you know are happening aren't really happening. That's what he would try to convince people of, and, and so he he told this story as part of his conversion back in the the late aughts, and he talked about going to a free clinic and there are uh, there have been a thousand of these at least i think and counting and obamacare didn't get rid of them this isn't like a horror story back from the day before obamacare like these are still happening and so he, he went to one of these free clinics in the appalachians sort of between tennessee and west virginia or uh, or southwest Virginia, Wise County, which I actually have a personal connection to. I used to go down there and uh, and film their horrible mountaintop removal tactics there in coal country back in my old life as a climate activist. So anyway, he, he he went to this famously impoverished area of Southwest Virginia in Wise County, and he went to a free medical clinic where he described hundreds of people lining up in the rain, seeking free medical care. And what he learned there is that many of those people seeking free medical care, having driven sometimes hundreds of miles and standing in the rain, had health insurance. They just couldn't afford to use it because the deductible was too high or their copays were too high and it just didn't make sense. And so they went to a free clinic and stood in a field. In a line that led to a barn, literally barns and tents and animal stalls, is what this particular free clinic was using to treat people in America. And I know that sounds horrible. That sounds like Something from the third world that couldn't possibly be happening here, but of course it is because our system is horrific and we just hide those sorts of things from the rest of society so we don't have to think about it. But it actually gets worse. And what this reminds me of is, you know how there are these stories of Walmart and McDonald's actually uh, paying their employees so little that they have to go on food assistance programs, and other, you know, other government programs to, to sort of help make up the gap uh, from how little these gigantic companies pay in wages. And what's worse is that those companies often encourage and streamline the process of their employees applying for government services. They actually help their employees fill out the forms. They provide the form sometimes and say, Basically, we know we don't pay you enough, so here, sign up for this and get help from the government. Well, very similarly, that is exactly what Wendell Potter heard from people at the free clinic as to what they had been told by their insurance companies. When they would contact their insurance company and say, I need medical help, but I can't afford my deductible, they would say, you should look for one of these free clinics, sending them to go stand in a field so that they could be treated in a barn. So that's the kind of horrific story that one might hear and actually have some effect on them and and make them change their mind about whether or not we need to reform our healthcare insurance system. Uh, But that's not what today's show is about. Uh, Today's show is about politics. So I just wanted to share that story. I thought it was worth sharing. But of course, we should just get out of the way because that's not the sort of story that's going to make change in this country. It's not going to change the minds of anyone who matters, you know, it might change the minds of everyone listening. But of course, uh, that's not enough. Uh, everyone being in favor of something isn't enough in this country. Uh, so of course, we need to focus on the politics and worry only about electing the right people and scaring the people who are already elected so badly That They come around to our way of thinking. Uh, Now, one last note, I just want to say that you should stick around at the end of the show uh, for a discussion on JFK's moon speech. Completely off topic, right? Uh, You've probably heard that we just had the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And I thought to myself, what can I add to this conversation that hasn't already been said a thousand times? And I think I have an answer. You know that line, the most famous JFK line about why we choose to go to the moon? We choose to go to the moon and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And what I'm wondering is, if you've ever wondered what those other things are he's referring to, and if you don't know, you are not alone. I am willing to bet less than 5% of Americans know what line comes before that one in that speech because it's never played anywhere. In fact, 5% is probably too generous, might be less than 1%. It just so happens, I am one of the people who knows about that line that comes before because I watched that whole speech about 10 years ago when I was doing video research, and it's a pretty interesting story, so I will tell you all about it in my final comments today. But first, onto the show. Clips today come from Election Ride Home, The Majority Report, The Real News, Kim Iverson, The Zero Hour, and The Young Turks.
1: At its core, Medicare for All is about expanding the existing federal government Medicare program so that it would cover all Americans, not just those who are 65 and older. In the current Sanders vision, this would intentionally destroy the private insurance market as we know it today. So if you have a private health insurance plan that you like right now, and Medicare for All becomes law, you're not going to have that plan anymore. But you can still pick your doctor. And the bet that Sanders is placing is that you'll actually like the Medicare system better. Because for you, and for your doctor, it will be way simpler. Now the first issue to tackle is, what happens to the private health insurance market in a Medicare for All scenario? After all, these companies are the core of Obamacare. Sanders basically says, nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure that Medicare would truly be the single standard in the country. But the reality is that some form of private health insurance will survive no matter what. Well, why? Because there will always be things that are not covered by Medicare, and this is currently true even in other countries with single-payer systems. Some things you might need to cover privately are super-specific, high-cost drugs or certain kinds of specialized care. So, there will definitely be some kind of market to get that stuff, even in a Medicare for All world. Now, how expensive that would be if you want to buy that private insurance, probably super expensive. Let's just be clear on that. But one goal of Medicare for All is to make it so that, essentially, the 99% get everything they need from Medicare. No extra costs, not even a copay for a doctor visit, or even a hospital visit. Okay, next up we have to talk about how medical insurance actually works financially so that we can get into a discussion of what Medicare for All might cost. So let's do health insurance 101 right now. Today, in the current system, every health insurance provider, including Medicare, has to negotiate with every service provider, like doctors and hospitals and stuff, and every drug provider to arrive at a price for every service and every drug. That's why some plans don't pay for certain doctors. They didn't agree on a price, or the doctor couldn't keep up with all those negotiations with all those plans. That's also why some plans don't cover some drugs. They couldn't work out a deal. Now, the net result of all this negotiation is that your private health insurance pays the same doctor a different rate for the same service when compared to somebody else's private health insurance or compared to Medicare. And, famously, Medicare usually pays less, in part because it has a huge number of people signed up. That big group makes Medicare's negotiation position much stronger. The New York Times cites Charles Blayhouse, a senior research strategist at the Mercatus Center, who pegs that difference in price at about 11% on average, meaning the same service paid for by private insurance costs the insurance company about 11% more than it costs Medicare. This is a broad estimate across all services and all drugs, but it does give you an idea of why just mathematically switching everybody over to Medicare would make sense and might even save money. So the big business idea behind Medicare for All is that it would create a single negotiator with a giant group of people, in this case literally all Americans, signed up under one plan. And that gives that one player, the U.S. government, tremendous power in negotiations with doctors and drug companies. Let me read from the New York Times here. Quote, Patients in the United States pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. That's partly a result of a fractured system in which different payers negotiate separately for drug benefits. But it also reflects national preferences. An effective negotiator needs to be able to say no and American patients tend to want access to the widest array of cutting-edge drugs, even if it means paying more. A Medicare-for-all system would have more leverage with the drug industry because it could bargain for the whole country's drug supply at once. But politics would still be a constraint. A system willing to pay for fewer drugs would probably get bigger discounts than one that wanted to preserve the current set of choices. That would mean, though, that some patients will be denied the medications they want. End quote. Okay, so this does raise another issue, which is that if Medicare for All does end up paying doctors and hospitals and drug manufacturers less than they currently make now, how does that affect those people and those companies? Well, it's actually kind of simple. It gives them a pay cut. Sanders seems fine with that, and maybe there's an argument that you could, like, make it up on volume or something, but that is a key concern when we are talking about people's health. You don't want people dying as a result of trying to push more of them through a hospital more quickly to bring in more money. Then again, you don't want people dying because they can't afford health insurance at all, which is the problem we have today. So really, which problem would you prefer? And you may ask yourself, what does this plan cover? Like, you know how right now your dental and your vision is from some other weird company and there's like a different amount of coverage for that stuff? Well, in the Sanders plan, it's all in one. Everything. Hospital visits, regular doctor visits, medical devices, lab tests, maternity care, prescription drugs, vision, dental, substance abuse treatment, even hearing aids, which are typically not covered right now. All join up as part of this version of Medicare for All. This is actually way more generous than countries like Canada, where people have to take out private policies to cover vision and dental and sometimes prescription drugs and a handful of other services. Oh, and also the Sanders plan says that there are no copays for doctor visits or hospital visits. There is a maximum $200 copay each year for prescription drugs which is way, way more generous than plans today. Plus, it's different than Medicare is today. Medicare today has a 20% copay after your deductible. So this super limited copay thing would definitely affect how much this program costs, at least on the government side. Okay, so the last part of this first segment on the Sanders plan is, how would we move from the current private insurance system to Medicare for all? Well, in the new plan, Americans would have four years to transition into the new program from their private insurance and away from today's Medicare. Oh, and by the way, Sanders leaves the Veterans Affairs Health System and the Indian Health Service alone, letting those populations continue with what they've got today. And how this four-year transition happens is also kind of novel. The idea is that each year, the eligibility age for Medicare would drop down by one decade. So currently the age is 65. So after four years, you would have 25-year-olds on Medicare after the full transition.
2: It was great being part of the first Democratic debate in Miami. The question was asked whether we support eliminating private health insurance. Some said yes, I said absolutely not. I believe we have to protect and build on Obamacare. That's why I proposed adding a public option to Obamacare as the best way to lower costs and cover everyone. I understand the appeal of Medicare for all, but folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that. I was very proud the day I stood there with Barack Obama and he signed that legislation. Never before had anyone ever been able to do that in the White House. 20 million Americans gained coverage. Over 100 million with pre-existing conditions finally got protection. And most important, peace of mind. You know, I know how hard it is to get that passed. I watched it. Starting over makes no sense to me at all. I knew the Republicans would do everything in their power to repeal Obamacare. They still are. But I'm surprised that so many Democrats are running on getting rid of it. The Affordable Care Act was a historic achievement for President Obama. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to do everything in my power to protect it and build on it. Okay. That is one of the
3: most cynical takes you could possibly have. The idea that this is getting rid of uh, Obamacare. It is building Obamacare. It is building in. Now, it's
4: overcoming it in the Hegelian sense.
3: It's just absurd. It would be like, how can we possibly give up uh, CRT uh, computer monitors? Why would we want to do that? It's such an amazing accomplishment. The idea of a computer. Yes, it's the size of, of an entire uh, apartment, but why would we want to give that all up for a, for a laptop? Why would you want to do that?
5: It's like when they were unleading gasoline saying you, they
3: want to get rid of cars. Exactly. It's just, it's just, it's incredibly cynical. I can understand the strategy there because you want to make it sound like they're attacking Barack Obama. And, uh, But look at this. This is amazing. Look at this guy who's attacking Obamacare, too. It's not just Bernie Sanders at all who want to get rid of Obamacare for Medicare for all. It's this guy who is willing to do the same thing. It's disgusting.
5: It's harder for young people to save for a rainy day, let alone retirement. So Democrats aren't just running on Good old ideas, like a higher minimum wage. They're running on good new ideas, like Medicare for all. Giving workers seats on corporate boards.
3: What? Oh, my gosh. Back in uh, the fall of 2018, there's Barack Obama endorsing at least two major uh, campaign uh ideas bernie sanders
5: why isn't barack being honest about the fact that if you do
3: medicare for all you have to have a three-month period where no one's allowed to get health care wasn't it like a four-month period i don't know or yeah yeah something like a four to six-month period or something like that like the doctor lie i can't believe barack obama's attacking Br- obamacare in that way it really seems uh aggressive and i will say this too for those people who think that that joe biden's plan has a better chance of passing. He wants to expand the public option. P4HCF, this is the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. This is an industry group that is against Medicare for All. On Joe Biden's plan, we strongly believe every American deserves access to high quality health care. We agree with the majority of Americans who believe the best way to achieve this is is what is working while coming together to fix what isn't. Unfortunately, Vice President Biden's proposal for a new government insurance system through a public option would undermine the progress of our nation. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the fight is going to be had. The fight's going to be had. So are you going to enter into that fight saying we want what we want or are you going to enter into that fight with like we're willing to take a fraction of what we want, but the opposition is going to be exactly the same. The opposition is going to be exactly the same. This is a simple question of physics. You've got to knock down a steel door. Do you take a hammer or do you take a uh, a ramrod? Which one do you start to approach that hammer, that door with first? I mean, Joe Biden's really digging deep into the hoping to reach the people who are not paying attention about politics. It's also very poor timing. This is what's fascinating about this. Right now, 35% of Democrats were paying attention to the debates. I don't know how many are paying attention to the primary, but I guarantee you it's about half of what it's going to be in just two and a half months. In September, early October, we get close to Iowa. By the time you get to Iowa, you're going to have probably two and a half times more attention paid on the primary Joe Biden's out there and he's trying to appeal to uh, those people who are not paying attention to politics, which is to say like, these guys want to get rid of Obamacare, which is like literally the equivalent of saying like, how can you take away from hardworking Americans? the $7 and 25 cents that they're making when they try and pass this new bill to raise the minimum wage. They're taking away their minimum wage now and then going to replace it with some other thing. That's basically what his argument is. You want a $15 minimum wage? and Why do you have to do this by taking away what they have now?
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Simple Habit, the meditation app that is solving the problem with meditation apps, because there are lots of different styles of meditation, and even more reasons one may want to meditate—different focuses, different personal issues to deal with—so it makes no sense to think that any one meditation expert could really be an expert on all of these things. So how do you find the right people with the right style and the right expertise? That's where Simple Habit comes in. Just like I curate content from a variety of political experts for this show, Simple Habit curates meditation experts in their app and helps you find just the right ones to fit your needs. You can even see what I mean for free. You can hear hundreds of meditations for zero dollars for as long as you like. And I don't think you should worry about being disappointed since the app has more than 65,000 five star reviews on the iOS and Android app stores and was the Google Play winner of 2018 for standout wellbeing app. Once you see the benefits for yourself, signing up for their premium account unlocks thousands of meditations, and right now, I have a limited-time special offer for you. During this short run of ads, the first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com left to activate their premium subscription will get 30% off the regular price. That's simplehabit.com left for 30% off, so don't wait.
6: Back in 2009, before the ACA hearings began, you thought a public option should be on the table. Right. Um, it really wasn't. There was a talk of public option. Obama kind of mentioned it, but certainly his heart was never in it. He didn't right. give it any real play, right. and it got off the table pretty fast. Uh, just a public option, if I understand it correctly, is you could go to these exchanges and you'd be able to choose private insurance. But if you wanted to, there would be a, a Medicare-style plan you could buy into. Um, now, since ACA and more recently, a lot of the advocates of Medicare for All, including like the nurses union and others, they don't want a public option on the table. They, right. they think it's kind of a distraction from getting Medicare for All, and they just want this focus on Medicare for All. What, what do you make of this public option versus just full-blown Medicare for All.
5: Well, you're right. During the debate on what became the Affordable Care Act, I was—I supported the creation of a public option. Uh, the reason was because there was no talk about moving to Medicare for All, for one thing. And a public option was as good as we possibly could get. Well, there was talk.
6: I mean, Sanders and others were talking about it, but it certainly wasn't on the table well, in that, terms that, of exactly. That's, Democratic
5: Party that, politics of the day. Correct. I mean, Obama was against it. He was against it, although at some time in his past he'd said we needed to have it, and if we could start all over again with a, a clean slate, that's what we should have But during his presidency, he certainly was not receptive to any conversation about moving to a a medicare for all type of system so that's all we could get back back then it was the uh the one thing that I thought might uh, make sure, even as Obama said, as you 're correctly noted, he was uh, uh, not so strongly in favor of it, but he at one point did say that we needed to have a public option if for no other reason than to keep private insurance companies honest. I agreed with that. This could have, could have possibly have been a way that could have created a, a new competitor for private insurance companies. Uh, the critique would- of
6: public option I've heard is that it would allow the uh, private insurance companies to cherry pick. They could kind of force through deductibles and other yeah. means uh, people – off, who have illnesses and need right. a lot of health care into the public
5: yeah. option and out of the private option and actually just increase their profitability. And that's exactly what more than likely would happen if such a, a public option were created. Now, keep in mind, they fiercely fought that. They didn't want to have any kind of a new competitor. That, and uh, But if you create a public option, you're just adding to complexity and you are probably the way it would be structured would indeed. Play. So, you're, so you're opposed to that now. You think there needs to be just move to Medicare. Oh, absolutely. As long as you keep private insurance companies in the mix, you're never going to be able to have a system that is less complex and less expensive than, when, than the one we have now. Uh, insurance companies are middlemen who serve no real purpose in this country. Uh, a few years ago, before I left my job at Cigna, I was in a leadership meeting with uh, the CEO. Uh, one person asked him, what keeps you up at night? And he he said uh, uh, disintermediation, uh, which was a term that we all almost had to look up. But he said that that what he was afraid of was that uh, in, the company's customers they're. Imp- Employers in particular, uh, employer customers would come to question the value proposition of private insurance companies. And we've reached that point now. In other words, uh, we, we have reached the point that employers are looking to disintermediate, to get rid of a middleman in this healthcare system. Uh, they add cost rather than remove costs from the system. Uh, they are barriers for people to getting the care that they need. Uh, so it, it has to be eliminated. There is no way that we're ever going to get our cost into control uh, or get anywhere close to having majority of our, uh, more of our people covered uh, as long as we have private insurance companies in the mix. I'm confident of that. Joe Biden is in the race for uh, 2020.
6: And right now it's Biden versus Bernie. Maybe that's will change, but in some ways it's a good thing because you have two very distinct views, especially on healthcare. Um, One will argue, and I'm gonna argue the Biden side here, uh, that to take on pharma, to take on uh private and healthcare insurance companies, to move to Medicare for All and take on that war with Wall Street. In a very important profit center for them, is going to throw that sector behind Trump. And if you think the paramount issue, which a lot of people think, is defeating Trump, then you don't want to take on that sector. And, And you need to compromise with that section of finance and try to fix the ACA to some extent. Or you'll throw a massive amount of Wall Street behind Trump and and Wall Street already is kind of happy with Trump he's right. between the tax cuts and deregulation of Wall Street I mean I actually don't know if it make that much difference anyway because I think Wall Street kind of loves Trump on the other hand they might they might go for a Biden because the Obama administration was not that unfriendly mm-hmm. to Wall Street I mean yeah Dodd Frank was passed and so on right. but the truth is Wall Street did very well under the Obama administration and they might like a more rational uh biden wall street friendly uh versus what a lot of people think is a pretty crazy trump
5: so what do you make of that argument because i think that's what we're going to hear a lot of that we'll hear a lot about that and i'm sure there's probably some truth to that Um, uh, but i also know that a lot of the corporate the big corporate wall street democrats are uh, 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 you know they are concerned about this groundswell of support for uh, for candidates that you know are able to uh, amass a, a lot of of campaign money through small donations, their their power is being challenged, and they don't like that. Uh, and uh, uh, so I think, uh, but but what Biden is doing uh, is is showing that uh, at least the establishment Democrats are still very much beholden to uh, Wall Street and to big corporate interest and uh, the other candidates are going to be trying to distinguish themselves from that. A number of them are already. It could be that there will be some money that goes to Trump that might otherwise go to some Democratic candidates. I'm not so certain if that's the case. Uh, We'll see. But uh, I don't think that Wall Street necessarily has as much sway over Democratic voters as they once did, particularly with some of the candidates who uh, are sh- certainly shunning Wall Street and, and uh, would be Wall Street's worst nightmare. Certainly Bernie Sanders, uh, probably even more so Elizabeth Warren uh, and some of the other Democrats that have said they will not take uh, corporate donations. So what do, you, what do you think is the significance of these elections? I think they're very significant. I think, uh, um, as we've talked previously, there's not any chance that Medicare for all will get through this Congress and, uh, and be signed into law by President Trump. That's just not going to happen. Uh, so the elections couldn't be more important if this is to advance. And, and I'm of the opinion that the current healthcare system is not sustainable. It's going to collapse at some point. If it doesn't collapse, it's going to be a system that is a that people only who are the wealthiest in this country are going to be able to afford care, and the rest of the population just simply uh, will not be able to get the care that they need. We already are the only developed country in the world that rations care on the ability to pay, and that's only going to get worse. And I think you're going to be seeing uh, not only more and more individuals and families uh, support Medicare for all, uh, but you're going to see increasingly businesses, small businesses, mid-sized businesses in particular. Uh, one of the other things that I have done uh, is agreed to serve as president of this organization called the Business Initiative for Health Policy. And it's an organization that makes the business case, uh, not just the social and moral case, but the business case for moving to Medicare for all. Uh, and representing businesses that can no longer uh, afford to offer coverage to their workers. They're becoming increasingly uncompetitive uh, in the global marketplace uh, if they uh, are having to uh, experience, year after year, premiums they can't control. Uh, the, f- the, the, the founder of the business initiative is a, a business executive who is calculating that it now costs him $14 an hour per year, per employee, uh, to offer coverage to his workers, which is ridiculous. Um so uh, there there's no employer that can can do this indefinitely in this country and still be competitive in a global marketplace.
7: Beto has released his plan for healthcare. It's called Medicare for America, which was actually something that was written by it was introduced last year by Reps Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut and Jan Schakowsky from Illinois uh, that was founded on previous work for the Center for American Progress and Yale professor Jacob Hacker. The plan is called Medicare for America. So what Beto what Beto's plan is, is this, unlike Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all This would not move every American into government health care over the next this would what this would do is allow people to select between moving to Medicare for all or um, sticking with their employers plans, which is not going to work. And I'll explain why. But this is an article from Vox. Again, it says, It would not move every American into a government health care plan over the next few years as Medicare for all bill authored by Sanders would. Employer based insurance, which covers half of all Americans, would be preserved through worker. Though workers would have the option of leaving their work plan to join the new Medicare program over a long enough timeline. However, Medicare for America would likely cover most and maybe all of Americans under a single government plan. The uninsured and people on Medicaid or Obamacare would be moved into the new public coverage right away and newborns would be enrolled automatically in the plan as well. Beto says in responds to the fact that so many Americans have said, I like my employer based insurance. I want to keep it. I like the network I'm in. I like the doctor that I see. It complements what already exists with the need that we have for millions of Americans who do not have insurance and ensures that each of them can enroll in Medicare. It then suggests additional investments in the program. So it becomes the program of choice and people who have private insurance migrate over to the Medicare system. So it's essentially trying to kill rather than just ripping the Band-Aid off of the insurance industry. It's just saying, okay, we're going to keep this fight going. And we've seen it is a battle. The private insurance industry is pouring every ounce of extra money they've got into lobbying these politicians to ensure that Medicare for All does not happen. And this is just one more way. A lot of these companies are realizing, okay, we're not going to be able to stop the conversation. So what we can do is try to get these politicians to split it. Instead of saying, okay, we're going to go full bore into Medicare for all. Instead, we're going to try these other little, um, you know, we're going to like allow people this choice, which won't work. And the reason it won't work is because here's the deal. If we move to Medicare for all, this idea of, you know, so many Americans, they just want the choice. They like their employer based coverage. They like their doctors. They like their network. Medicare for all moves everybody in to one network. Okay. All the doctors, all the hospitals, all the clinics, everybody's under one network. You no longer have to say, oh, you know, I really like that doctor, but they're not in my network. They're in your network in Medicare for All because everybody's in one network. That means if you like your doctor, you actually could keep your doctor. You like your hospital, you actually could keep your hospital. You like your clinic, you would keep your clinic. Why? Because you're all under Medicare for All. Now, if we move to a system like this where it's like, okay, some people do Medicare for All. And others can keep their employer based system. First of all, um, rather than, like I said, ripping the band-aid off and saying, okay, we need to have a fix for all of these employees all of these employees who are going to be displaced. And we need to make sure that they're that they have funds to last new training, and we can move them into a new industry or a comparable industry. We've got to have a fix for all of these unemployed people working for this insurance company. When you do it this way, you slowly bleed out, you slowly bleed out the private insurance industry. What happens is they try to stay afloat. They think maybe we will. But we all know that if you're an employer and you know that your employees can get off of your back... And on to a Medicare for All system, you're not going to carry insurance anymore for your employees. You're going to ditch it. You're going to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Go get the government insurance. I don't want to have to deal with it because it's a cost on me. It's a burden on me. It's extra people I have to hire. It's plans I have to go through and figure out which one's best. I have to pay for this. I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> We're out. So the insurance companies will will try to hold on. Employers will ditch out. The private insurance companies will slowly die. That means they will slowly lay people off. These people will then just be out of a job because we might not have a program in place that actually gets them back into something else, training programs, salaries for a couple of years, which is what, which is what Medicare for all, that Medicare for all plan, uh, proposes. It literally would just put people out of work rather than saying, okay, we're going to move you. We're actually going to shut this down and move you because it, we're, because the government's doing it. When you leave it up to the employer, they're not going to do it. Um, also, you wouldn't have the same choice that you would get if we all moved to Medicare for all because some hospitals, some clinics, some doctors would say, we're not going to accept Medicare for all. We're going to stay in the private network. And there you are. You're in your employer-sponsored network right now. And you like your doctor and you like your hospital and you like your clinic and you're, and, and, and that doctor and that clinic and that hospital says, we're not going to accept Medicare for all. We're only going to stay in this Blue Cross Blue Shield. And then your employer turns around and says, you know what? I'm dropping Blue Cross Blue Shield. I don't need it anymore. You need to go and do Medicare for all. So now you have lost your doctor, your clinic, and your hospital. That is why these plans don't work. They cause what it would do and what these insurance companies are hoping for is that when that happens, that the American people speak up and say, oh, this is shit. I don't want this. We need to go back to the old way. That's what they're banking on. You've got these corporate, we'll say, Democrats who are pushing for this, And this is why, because the insurance companies are banking on you losing your employer-sponsored health insurance, you having to be forced into Medicare for All, and the doctor of your choice, the hospital of your choice, the clinic of your choice, staying with the private insurer, not accepting Medicare for All, meaning you do get screwed out of your doctor of choice. If we all moved to Medicare for All, everybody would be in that network because it's one network. You're in the network. Your doctor's in the network. The hospital's in the network. The clinic's in the network you get to pick anybody you want it actually gives you more choice it gives you more choice and it gets employers more it gives them more freedom to not have to worry about offering medical insurance to employees they could maybe even boost up salaries because they're not having to pay for medical insurance um i mean there's just so much there
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. I first used Babbel more than a year ago to work on my language skills, and I will admit that it wasn't the first program I tried, but it really was the last. Because I could easily tell how much more effective Babbel was at teaching language lessons ...that I could put to use right away. Other apps were teaching me how to say things like, the boy eats meat, while Babel's lessons are clearly directed at the kinds of interactions you're actually going to have in a non-English-speaking country. Babel's lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, otherwise known as real people, not by a translation machine, and you can tell... Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot Babbel, speak a new language with confidence.
8: So one of the other big issues here that I think that, that clearly is going to be battling a, a battleground in this election uh, will be health care and how we define health care. So let's take a look at what some of the candidates said about that and, and, and tackle this. Who here would abolish their private
9: health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Just a show of hands start off with. <laughs> All right, well...
7: Healthcare is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human exactly, rights.
9: Getting to guaranteed, high-quality,
5: universal health care as quickly and surely as possible has to be our goal.
9: I do want to ask a follow-up on this one. Just to be, just to be very clear, I'll give you 10 seconds. Would you replace private insurance? No, I, I think the choice is, is fundamental hey, to wait, wait. our ability to get O'Rourke. everybody yeah, careful.
6: Private insurance is not working for tens of millions of Americans. When you talk about the co pays, the deductibles, the premiums, the out of pocket expenses, it's not working. <laughs> that's How right. Can you so
5: defend so for, the for those system? are not, not working, they can choose Medicare. For the culinary workers
9: in you Nevada, who I listen to, who the have got to start by acknowledging system is those not plans. working for people. In my community, African Americans have a lower life expectancy because of poorer health care. And so where I stand is very clear. Healthcare is not just a human right; it should be an American right. Should be an American
8: right. So this really got off, and plus that the thing between <laughs> B- B- Beto and uh, Beto uh, and De Blasio, De Blasio. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing. I mean, <laughs> Beto—we uh, can talk about Beto later if we have time—but he really kind of, kind of took a nosedive yes, again last night. I don't—I don't know who that candidate was in Texas, but he certainly isn't posting <laughs> right now. But, um, <laughs> but let's talk about this healthcare piece again. This entire debate has been pushed in a place that was never there before. Mm-hmm. Obama kind of didn't even promise to pick up the option, didn't pick up the public option. And then since that moment, it's really been pushed further. Mm-hmm. Medicare for all. And people are trying to wrestle how they would do Medicare for all and not do away with private insurance. Um And when I heard de Blasio, and he talks about all these copays, I all I want to say, yes, brother, I understand. <laughs> I do know. I hate that. So, I, <laughs> so talk about about where, where you think this takes this debate and, and what people said. Kimberly, you want to begin? Um... I found it interesting that it was just Warren and de Blasio who that raised their raised hands, raised their right. hands right. and the other eight candidates um, kind of held firm to where they were. Um, I do think health care will be a major issue in 2020, that candidates um, as well as the general public is looking for an answer to this. And so even though Obama did not manage that um, to the best effect, Um, what I do think he did is he opened the door so that folks are like, this has to be resolved. We've got to do something different. What Trump has done is rolled us back a bit on these issues. But in particular, the Democratic Party is saying, we've got to keep pushing it. And that's what's going to um, help us return back to the White House. So, so let me add to this as you come into this, Lester. I mean, one of the things, if, if we watch what happened with Obamacare, what uh, we call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and the difficulty it had getting through, and the resistance it had from the Republicans, resistance it had from the right, resistance it had from the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry itself. Um, imagine the battle for Medicare for All. Yeah. But that's being taken up here, and how that might play out politically.
9: So what I think uh, we discount is the ability of rhetoric to actually create. Majorities, right? So you you use rhetoric to say, okay, this is where we are, but this is where we want to go. And then once you articulate that, and, uh, and uh, once you articulate that, I mean, given all types of other stuff, then people can say, oh, wow, this is possible. I didn't know this was possible. Yes, we can fight for this. Yes, we should. Right. Um, so what I think we're seeing now is something that can has, have the potential. To create kind of a new imaginary around healthcare. Because that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about within a very short time. We um and I disagree slightly with uh with, with Kim in that I, I think uh we can say that Obama's legislation created the space, but Obama didn't do it, right? Obama at no point in time. Articulated anything right. saying, like, this is right, oh, this it is, is his what legislation. We, yeah, is, right, yeah. that this is what where we want to go is this, but this is our halfway point. Right. What we're seeing now is actually the potential of, of a movement on this and a range of other issues where we can say, wow, this is where we want to go. We want health care as a human right. That's really a radical statement compared to where we've been going back to 92. Uh,
10: So let's, Natalie Shore, let's talk a little bit about the politics of all of this. For some reason, you know, we're, we're still in the, we're changing, which makes me feel great, but we're still in the stage of the debate, uh, particularly among, you know, insiders and pundits and self-proclaimed wants and so on where uh, you know, spending 32 trillion dollars over 10 years through the government is considered uh, shockingly costly but spending 34 36 38 trillion out of people's pockets taken regressively from those who can least afford it is just business as usual so i mean that's one of the big obstructions to uh, getting something like medicare for all in place is that people say we can't afford it, even though we're spending more than that now because of the psychology of spending through the government. Do you have any thoughts on how we combat that?
11: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I do agree. I think that the politics are going to be complicated and certainly the medical industry is going to throw absolutely every resource that it can uh, at defeating this. Um, they've done that in the past, uh, you know, in the 1940s when it looks like national health insurance might pass. Uh, they tried to do that with Medicare. Uh, in a lot of cases, they tried to do it against the ACA uh, until they were given enough carrots to, you know, kind of stand down. Um, so they're definitely going to fight it. Uh, what I find is interesting about the political debate is the fact that, uh, you know, left of center, as far as I can tell, uh, pretty much everyone agrees that we have to do more uh, than is in place now. We have to you know push some leftward health care reform. I think that there are plenty of democratic politicians who wouldn't want to go far uh, as far as Medicare for all but certainly want to expand the role of uh you know public insurance and you know I think a lot of them are warming up to the idea that there need to be tighter regulations on the market on the industry. Um, frankly, the industry is going to fight that too. Uh, so the, you know, the, the political hurdles that you're talking about are always lobbed against Medicare for all and single payer specifically, uh, which is very curious to me because they're going to fight all of these other systems just as hard. Uh, and so it seems to me that, you know, if you're going to have to fight a massive uphill political battle either way, uh, why would you not want, you know, why, why are you preemptively compromising and kicking the can slightly further down the road the way that we tried to with the ACA? Uh, we're going to end up with the same problems because they're not really addressing the root of the issue, uh, the root of the uh, reasons that our healthcare system is so uniquely screwed up. Uh, and so I think that the political argument tends to be misapplied.
10: You know, I I couldn't agree more. And this is what I was going to say, what I sometimes call the friendly fire uh, problem. But I've actually never called it that before. It just popped into my head. But so why would I say that? But anyway... Uh, it is kind of a friendly fire where people say, yeah, I really think every, I support single payer, but it's just not achievable politically right now. So I think instead we really need to stick with an extremely complicated plan that is very hard for people to understand or apply for or administer and that gives them enormous out of pocket costs and leaves enormous areas of health treatment uncovered because somehow incrementally that will get us to single payer. I don't understand how these incremental plans, which, as you point out, are just as unpopular and going to meet just as intense a level of opposition, I don't understand how they even get us to where their proponents say they agree we need to be.
11: Yeah. uh, I mean, you know, in a lot of cases, a lot of the competing plans don't even result in universal health care. Uh, you know, especially some of the public options, some of the, you know, Medicare buy-in plans, none of those have universal coverage uh, or even portend to. Uh, The Center for American Progress Plan uh, I will say does result in universal coverage, but doesn't do anything to uh, address the issues of underinsurance, which is, you know, the tens of millions of people who have a plan but can't afford to use it because the deductibles and copays are so high. So they're effectually uninsured. Um you know, a lot of these other compromise plans will face just as much opposition, but won't uh, actually address the problems that we need to address in the way that Medicare for all does.
10: Well, and I remember these conversations around the Affordable Care Act when the debates were first going on 2007 or so, and healthcare care economists would say, you know, of that. You know, sort of sector or sector, would say ten that and it's still in the Center for American Progress plan, I believe. You should be able to pay ten percent of your income on uh, premiums, and then it maybe we'll throw in copays and deductibles too. But nobody who believes that. I, I believe, has ever tried to raise a family of four on a $65,000 a year income uh, or $75,000 a year because saying that, oh, here's another $7,500 in case you, you get sick that you should just be willing to do without if someone in the in your family winds up in the hospital is just not the way real people live. We have 50% of the population saying they couldn't come up with 400 bucks in case of an emergency. 70% of the population saying they couldn't come up with $1,000. So any plan that says you have to pay out of pocket, 10% of your income is automatically ensuring that millions of Americans will not get the health care they need. And yet that's the status quo for plans like that. So I I guess the last thing I would ask is, do you have any thoughts about how we push back on that effectively so that we get real single payer?
11: I mean, I think, you know, the important thing uh, is that we know that historically, once we actually get these things, uh, a constituency forms around them to really vehemently defend them. Uh, I think that these kind of concerns have been raised about every major public expansion, and you know, something like Social Security, uh, which I think was considered, uh, you know, bridges and bridges too far at the time, is now uh, you know such a bedrock of American society and an American life that uh, you know, no matter how hard. Uh, neoliberals have tried to push back against it, it is, I mean, knock on wood, still intact. Uh, And so I think that, you know, obviously, that's putting the cart before the horse a bit. But uh, I think that, you know, seeing these objections for what they are, uh, something that, you know, comes up routinely, historically, and have been Proven wrong again and again, should at least, you know, galvanize the efforts of people organizing around this. Uh, I do think that pushing for it to be uh, a litmus test, really being relentless about getting uh, public officials to endorse certain things, to make sure that we address misconceptions, to, uh, you know, have public demonstrations for these things when uh, it when it's possible. Uh, I think that all of those things will be very important uh, and that the common thread in all of them is to have, uh, you know, a really robust, vocal, ground up operation demanding these things. Um, That's going to be, I think, the key in making sure that they get pushed forward to have a, you know, really broad on the ground constituency uh, for these so that it's not top down, I think is going to be instrumental in making sure that we get this over the finish line.
12: I wanna turn to a progressive activist for the Center for Popular Democracy, Adi Barkan, has ALS and traveled to the Medicare for All hearings, even though there was a significant medical risk to doing that travel because of how important it was to Adi that he explained to the people assembled there the urgency of dealing with the situation. And and in the testimony that you're gonna hear, talked about, obviously, who the system is not working for, but also who the system is currently working for. And here's a bit of that testimony.
13: This healthcare system only works if you're a pharmaceutical or insurance industry executive who wants to maximize their own profit at the expense of people like me. It is simply unconscionable that I should have to pay $9,000 per month for life-saving medical care at a time when the insurance industry is raking in record profit. That's wrong, and it needs to stop. Here's the thing, it's a huge stress to have to fight with insurance companies over what they'll cover. It's a huge financial strain. But most of all, I've come to realize that our time on Earth is the most precious resource any of us have. I wish I didn't have to be here today. I think you are wonderful, Congressman, but frankly, I'd rather be back at home, (laughs) being with my wife and playing with my son instead of trying to wake the conscience of this nation's lawmakers.
12: And obviously there was much more to it that you can find online, but it it was powerful.
14: So Addy is one of the best uh, organizers, one of the top progressives in the country, and it's impossible to think about him without uh, it being heartbreaking. And so uh, he he is slowly dying, and that's just, it's hard to say out loud. Um, but you're gonna see Congressman Raskin explain the difference between misfortune and injustice in a second. But But for people who can't afford the treatment, think about how insane our system is. We just let them. Die. Mm-hmm. So if now, Addie's not in this situation, but if you don't have any health insurance and you don't qualify for a government program like Medicaid, if you get sick or your kids get sick with a long term illness, not, you know, hey, they broke their arm, they had a, they've got cancer, we let them sit in the fire. We don't send the cavalry, we let them die. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And look at the cost that Addie talked about the costs are preposterous it would bankrupt any family i mean when i when we talk to people outside of this country you can do it yourself it, from any other canada europe japan talk to anybody in a in a with a country in a modern economy they can't believe it they said really america the richest country in the world just lets its citizens die without medical care yeah it's insane
12: yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously, I think people on our side, I mean, it goes against literally every political value that we have. Um, but even on the opposite side, I don't remember the specifics. Maybe you remember better than I do. But there was a Republican primary debate in 2016 where they had a talk about this. about, And I believe that Donald Trump, who at that point was who's lying and pretending that he was going to take the healthcare situation seriously, that he would make sure that everyone was cared for and the government would pay for it. And I believe that he said, I'm not going to let someone just die on the streets, which is a position that some of the other Republicans running for the office were pursuing. And the reason that Trump was pitching himself that way is because nobody, no regular person who is not receiving checks from the pharmaceutical companies, the healthcare companies, and all of that actually wants to see anyone, citizen or otherwise, die in the streets. But once you're handed a lot of money, you can be shifted to that position. And there is a lot of money, by the way. I looked it up. So far, just this year, one quarter, health insurance companies, healthcare companies, that sector has spent $156 million in one quarter, the most of any sector of our economy. And the reason is because we're in this environment where people are talking about things like Medicare for All, and we're talking about hearings for Medicare for All. And so they are ramping up their spending to make sure that the status quo is maintained. The status quo that the video we were just talking about, we were referencing how the current system it is working for some people. And those people it's working so well for that they can afford to hand over $156 million in four months.
14: Remember, a place like Canada, Japan, half our costs. It's not just a moral issue, it makes no sense at all to have private health insurance be a middleman, where they soak up all the profits, give it to their executives. And there is higher medical errors, lab errors in America, higher mortality rates. Our results are significantly worse, and it costs twice as much. So imagine a mainstream media, if instead of hearing what you hear all the time, which is how are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? They say almost on a loop 24-7, right? If instead you heard, how are we gonna pay for this current system? This is twice as expensive as all the other developed nations. How are we gonna pay for this system? And if you heard constantly, we let kids die in this country if they don't have health insurance? I think that we, it, Medicare for all already pulls a 70%. If you heard the truth, probably pull at 90 or 95%. Why doesn't the corporate media do that? That's amazing. And by the way, one of the answers is just look at their programmings on cable news. filled to the rim with uh, drug company ads. Yep. And so those guys uh, who, under this current brutal system, get the jack-up price on you, and the government doesn't even get to negotiate, yeah. they don't want the cable news guys talking about how terrible this system, the facts about it. All right, uh, now let's, let's okay. do Jamie Raskin.
12: Yes, so uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, who is a co-sponsor for the Medicare for All bill uh, being debated in the hearings today, uh, gave a powerful defense for the, the moral rationale for uh, instituting a system like this. Let's take a look.
15: That I had learned something in this process about the difference between misfortune and injustice. Because if your life is going great, you've got not one but two jobs that you love and a wife that you love and my wife is here today and kids that you love and constituents you love. And you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, you got stage three cancer and you got a 50-50 chance of coming through it alive, that's a misfortune. It's a terrible misfortune, but it's just a misfortune because it's built into the nature of our species. You know, um, any of us could be assigned such a, a verdict on any particular day. Anybody could get such a diagnosis. But but if you experience such a misfortune and you get such a diagnosis and you can't get health care because you love the wrong person or you lost your job, or you're not working, or you're too poor. That's not a misfortune. That's an injustice because we can do something about that. And life is hard enough, Mr. Chairman, with all of the illness and accident and heartbreak for government to be compounding the misfortunes of life with the injustice of denying people access to health care when they get sick. And in the richest country in the history, of our species at its richest moment not to advance forward to adopt a Medicare for all system um, is to deny, I think, the common humanity of our fellow citizens.
12: That is, that is so powerful. And when I think, I don't want to derail us, but when I think about how the person currently leading the Democratic primary is against it, I just think, think about how there's no stronger Defining issue that clearly differentiates the overall ideology and political values of our side versus Donald Trump and what he represents than what you just saw from Representative Raskin. And right now in the polls, looks like we might not go in that direction.
14: Look, guys, the good news is we're going to win. We're going to get Medicare for all. The only thing is, we just have to break the corporate media blockade because they constantly misstate things. They say, oh, Medicare for all is gonna cost 32 trillion. They had a right wing expert on to say that during the hearings too. But without explaining that the current system costs at least 50 trillion. I mean, what a terrible, terrible job of so-called journalism. How could you not explain that every other country has half our expenses for significantly better results? We literally die earlier than other developed nations. We're the richest nation on Earth. But we treat our citizens so poorly that we die several years earlier than other developed nations. Why? Because, hey, the CEOs of private health insurance companies have to make more money. Really? Really? That's your justification? That's unbelievable. And what does cable news host do? They're like, they ask with a straight face, people who are for Medicare for All, Bernie Sanders, AOC, but it could be others. They're like, are you really gonna put private health insurance executives out of business, are you really gonna prevent them from making hundreds of millions of dollars and taking home several different yachts? No other country that's developed in all all the places that I described allows for that. Because you can't privatize the fire department, the police department, or health insurance. Otherwise, your citizens die so that someone can make a profit. Once we get that word out, they have no chance of winning. They have no chance of winning, but we also have to regain our democracy so that we don't have just cable news stations, but also politicians representing big pharma, health insurance companies, and they are, they are, and this is what a lot of Democrats can't say. It's that there's systemic corruption, and almost all the Republican politicians, but also a lot of the Democratic politicians, are legally bribed in our system. They literally get millions of dollars from these industries. And those industries get billions of dollars from us, and that's why we pay so much and why we let our citizens die.
0: We've just heard clips today from Election Ride Home explaining Bernie's Medicare for All bill in detail. The majority report made fun of Biden's incredibly cynical argument for opposing Medicare for All. The Real News spoke with Wendell Potter about why it makes sense to oppose the public option now and the democratic politics of Medicare for All. Kim Iverson explained why half measures that only drag out the fight makes the transition to Medicare for All worse rather than easier. The Real News discussed the possibility we now have to rally people with a good and powerful argument for striving for a single-payer system that was once unthinkable. The zero hour discussed how fighting for moderate healthcare reform under the guise of making the politics easier is misguided because healthcare companies and Republicans will fight any reform with equal ferocity. And finally, the Young Turks just helped explain the unacceptable status quo and the money in politics that's convincing politicians to support it. I have a quick activism segment for you today. I didn't have time to make it into a full segment, but I just want to point out that Public Citizen, Social Security Works, Democrat. Socialists of America, People's Action, National Nurses United, and many more are trying to build a Medicare for All, that's hashtag Medicare for All, groundswell ahead of the 2020 elections. To do it, They need people like you to help pass local government resolutions on Medicare for All in your communities, towns, cities, and states across the country. As local governments are often on the front lines of dealing with the consequences of our unaffordable and inequitable health system, they can play an important role in highlighting the desperate need for shifting to expanded and improved Medicare for All. Local resolutions can shape the public narrative and build political will necessary to support the national movement. Go to Medicare4, that's the number four, allresolutions.org for the tools you need to get started, and much more. I also wanted to mention that members this week will hear some additional material on our healthcare system, probably some more on corporate Democrats opposing reform, but also some backstory of our healthcare system explaining how we got to this point, a point of perpetual confusion for people. Plus, we've been having a discussion about comedy and politics on the bonus show. And so that conversation is continuing this week. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash best of left. And now we'll hear from you.
4: Hi, Jay. This is Navrit calling from Lombard in Illinois, right outside of Chicago, and I'm calling about the episode um, on the rise of Christian nationalism. I just wanted to say that uh, the episode itself was a confirmation of some things that I've felt for a long time as a person of color and as a non-Christian. I myself went through uh, the public school system, and I'm now a board member in a public school system, and I'm seeing firsthand how churches have been uh, partnering with our schools, and it results in um, decisions being made that end up impacting our kids, and it's all done under the umbrella of kindness, and I don't doubt uh, that people whose intentions are sincere and who care for kids, but I've always felt that there's another agenda behind it all, and if we look around at the wider issue as you did in your episode, we can see some of the agenda that's starting to take hold If you take a look at India, that's where I was born and what's happening there with the rise of Hindu nationalism, it's tragic for non-Hindus. Friends are reporting that they're being treated as second- and third-class citizens because they're not Hindu. So this is my issue if the Christian right takes hold here, especially in the court system. I fear that the rights of minority groups could be placed beneath Christian rights, and is that a place that we want to go? I'm so thankful for what you do and for the thoughtful voicemails that I always hear. I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say everyone should look at their local governments and see what's happening there. Who are the people who are running things and what are they for as far as their interests. So thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. And um, I always look forward to your shows. Thanks, Jay. Bye.
16: This is April Smith from Lexington, Massachusetts. I love that you have this line uh, to call in. I wanted to add a comment to your show when you described how people didn't like to use the term concentration camps to describe the detention centers at the border uh, with Mexico. And I have a completely different perspective on it. My feeling is that how can you not make the comparison? I feel like for the victims of the Holocaust and, and their families, it would be insulting not to make the comparison. I feel like it would be a travesty, actually, because when you say, no, it's nothing like that, they're not similar, that gives you permission to have sort of look away. And when you look away the oppressor increases their tactics becomes more violent and that's really the history of persecution right it just keeps increasing and increasing so i just feel like it would be an insult not to make that comparison so anyway just wanted to leave that message with you thank you great work i'll call on again sometime soon maybe thanks a lot bye-bye
0: thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991.
15: We choose
1: to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: So if you are like most Americans, you have probably heard that line dozens of times throughout your life. And if you are continuing to be like most Americans, you have never heard the line that comes before it that explains what the hell he's talking about when he refers to the other things. What other things are we doing because they are hard? Well, I have the answer for you, and it, it turns out to be more of an interesting story than you might expect. And it, it, the story just got more interesting for me, uh, than I even thought it was, like within the last two days. And, uh, so I, I've known about this for a, about a decade, because as I just happened to mention more than once today, uh, I, in my past life as a uh, climate change activist, and I was a videographer for a nonprofit, and I had to do archival video research every once in a while and one of the times i watched the entire it's like 18 minute jfk speech at rice university and the fact that it's at rice university is relevant so the first thing you need to know about what the hell he's talking about what are these other difficult things is where he is rice university and why so i learned sort of the, just the bare minimum of this story 10 years ago. I just heard the more detailed version uh, recently. And and you, you might have seen it too. Uh, there's a new American experience on PBS all about uh, the moon landing. is called Chasing the Moon. I've only seen episode one so far. But have a listen to this little excerpt that explains why in the world, of all places, did we put... Ground control in Houston. The shuttles take off from Florida. Why then do we have ground control in Houston?
15: Welcome to Houston, to Harris County, President of the United States, our Congressman Albert Thomas, to Space City, USA, which all of them and their colleagues were responsible for creating. This is our way... I'm saying to you, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, Congressman Thomas, thank you.
9: The reality was that there was an influential member of the House of Representatives named
0: Albert Thomas, who controlled NASA's money. And Mr. Thomas let it be known, if there was going to be a next NASA center, it had better be in his district, which was south of Houston. Mr. Mayor,
1: Congressman
15: Thomas, Vice President...
3: Ladies and gentlemen, as we reach towards the moon, I think it's most appropriate that this space center should be located here in Houston, here at Rice University.
0: And so
9: the decision to put the manned spacecraft center in Houston was very political.
15: Thank you, Mr. President. In conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, let me urge you to attend the program tomorrow morning at Rice Stadium. Be in your seats. In the morning, Rice Stadium.
0: And so, as you just heard, the following day, JFK went to Rice Stadium at Rice University to give his most famous moon speech. And we know why he was there, Rice University being intimately involved in the creation of uh, ground control. And we know why it was there, because of political influence. And there's only one additional piece of context I think you need, which is that, in case you don't know anything about Rice University, as I didn't, to be honest, Rice University's main rival is Texas University. Just something to keep in mind.
10: But why some say the moon?
1: Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not
3: because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: So now you know the unfortunate truth. Ground control was in Houston, just south of Houston, near Rice University, to curry political favor with a powerful congressman and maybe one of the most famous lines in American speech making history is sort of flubbed because it contains a bizarre reference that is not contained within the clip because he's making a silly pandering joke about Texas football And, you know, I I call it the unfortunate truth. But on the other hand, it may be one of the most American things to have ever happened in politics. So maybe it's perfectly fitting. Now, just a quick reminder before I go that Babbel is the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts and last only 10 to 15 minutes. They have 14 languages to choose from, so go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel.b-a-b-b-e-l.com. Now keep the comments coming in as always the number to dial 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,